0: Good morning. Did that come through here? There we go. Good morning. Good morning. Nice. That's better. I couldn't tell by your reaction whether or not you had heard me. Um, hey, I, I do want to remind you, as, as Bonnie did a little bit earlier, we have first-class seating in the front row. And when you get on an airplane, you want these seats. You hope you get them. You tell your friends when you got them. So uh, we might start putting, you know, like after-dinner mints on there or something to try to lure some of you forward. I don't know. Hot towel? Okay. <laughs> wow, I can see where this is going. Well, you're all going to feel convicted in just a moment when we get on our message topic. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, it's good to be here this morning. We rejoice that for those of us who have placed faith in you, we are saved, absolutely, completely saved. That sin once separated us from you to find our lives as now forgiven and forgotten and cast aside. You look at us and do not see sinful people. You see the righteousness of Christ. So we rejoice in the righteousness that we have not earned but have been so richly given. Thank you for that. and uh, Father, we give ourselves again to you as we look at your word. We lay ourselves open. We ask your Holy Spirit to instruct us and to teach us from your word. Father, help me not to get in the way of that, but just simply to be your instrument this morning. May we listen to your word. May we run it through the grid of our lives. May we transfer it into the substance of our lives and change if necessary so that we will walk with you in obedience. So thank you for your word and for this time to study it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5, uh, verse 8, that's where we're uh, continuing on in this morning. Uh, how many of you have food fights at your house? One, all right, just one. Well, let me characterize it a little different, and I don't mean necessarily throwing food around. How many of you have food security fights? That is... When you have uh, it's those little strategies to preserve the good food, the stuff that you want, the good cereal, uh, I'm talking about the last can of pop, the last pan, can of cold pop in the fridge, uh, I'm talking about the leftover Chinese food, uh, I'm talking about that last piece of pie. Uh, these little strategies that we concoct to, to protect and preserve those special foods that we want for ourselves, right? None of you would do anything like this. The leftover Mongolian beef from Pagoda in that little white box that reheats so nicely. Let me tell you, from first-hand experience, it fits right behind a gallon of milk in the back of the fridge (laughs) really well. You can't see it. The white just disguises it wonderfully. Uh, Or the last can of pop. How many of you have ever, be honest about this, taken that last can of cold pop from, from plain and easy seeing and put it in the door of the fridge down in among the salad dressing so that you would have it later in the evening? None of you have done this? Just me? Hang in there. Let's talk with the kids. If there's any kids in the service, they'll be honest with me. They were honest first service. Kids, how many of you have to hide your, your candy and your treats from your siblings? Any of you? Well, see, there's not too many kids in here right now. Or hide it from your mom. How about that? (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go there. Just a second. I used to, as a kid, I used to take the good cereal, like, say, the Lucky Charms. And I used to wait until it was about halfway gone. Then I would pull the bag out of the sleeve that it was in and switch it and put it in, say, the fiber flakes or whatever that my (laughs) sister would never go to so that I would get the rest of it, all right, just being honest, all right moms, here it comes, how many of you have a chocolate stash squirreled away somewhere in the house, there we go, (laughs) I don't mean the bowl that's out for everybody, I mean the one that's tucked away, I still remember watching or discovering my mother's stash of chocolate, Uh, and she listens by the way, uh, every week, so I'm in trouble for saying this already, you can pray for me, but um, she's going to hear this, and I'm in trouble. But I still remember finding it as a kid. My mom loves Dove chocolate. And she would have the little, the little bags of Dove chocolate stashed away, not, not like just in the pantry. I mean in the cupboard under the counter where we kept the pots and pans, and she put it in the wok under the lid <laughs> so that we wouldn't get to it. And I never told her that I found it. I just shared with her. So now she knows, and it probably created a complex for her thinking she was going through bags of chocolate that fast. But uh, Guys, we have a totally different strategy, don't we? It's called eat it now. We, we're not even going to try to save it because uh, our wives are home maybe most of the day. Kids get home by 4 o'clock. We don't get home till 5 or slightly after, so we don't even have a chance in this fight. And so our strategy is eat it now. Uh, there's no such thing as leftovers. It's called seconds, right? Now, and then, of course, there's the classic strategy that everybody does called writing your name on it, right? Does this happen in your house? You put it in there and you put a piece of tape on it or write your name right on it. You know, this is so-and-so's, like that's going to stop us. Uh, I appreciate the uh, name on the box because it just tells me who I need to avoid for the next couple of hours. (laughs) So thanks for doing that. If you're to go downstairs right now and open up the refrigerator in our church kitchen, there's got to be something in there with somebody's name on it or a threatening message that says, if you eat this, you'll die, <laughs> signed to the Sunday school teacher. Right? <laughs> uh, we all have our strategies uh, for how we're going to preserve what we feel is rightfully ours by hiding it or hoarding it or putting our name on it or something like that to make sure that our appetites don't go wanting right? We do that. Uh, And all we have to do is just look at the way we fight over food in our homes and our own refrigerator to see that that is our nature. That is the sinful human condition of selfishness and greed. And we're all there. I'm there. You're there. The Bible says that it is a universal condition. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We all have this nature within us. And we can laugh about it when we're just talking about food in the refrigerator. We're blessed, after all, to have an abundance in our country. So we can laugh about these things a bit. But when it comes down to real selfishness and greed for money, for possessions, for things, uh, it becomes a lot more destructive Uh, And Solomon basically is going to take this on here in the passage we're looking at this morning. And he's going to show us how these fundamental human conditions play out in life. Not just uh, in our own individual lives, but also in the lives of those around us. And you're going to see this morning the bottom line, the point, the bullet of this message that I hope you hear more than anything else is this. That greed leads to grief. Greed leads to grief. In your own life and in the lives of others in the community around you as well. Greed leads to grief, and that is our first point uh, this morning here. And so as we pick up these verses in verse 8, this particular passage, Solomon starts by showing us greed and the effect that it has on other people. And the bottom line he he gets at here is, I'm going too fast, he says that greed results in the oppression of others. It results in the oppression of others. Look at verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied do not be surprised at such things for one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still the increase from the land is taken by all the king himself profits from the lands or from the fields now how many of you? I'm curious. How many of you are reading in an N, the NIV translation this morning? That's what I typically preach. In a lot of you, good, uh, very good translation. Um, how many of you uh, are reading in the ESV? I'm not going to knock any of them, by the way. So you can you can be courageous. ESV, okay. It's a more literal word for word translation. And the NAS. This is just helpful for me. A few others, okay. Thanks. I want to, those of you who read this, if your version is the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version, it read a little bit differently, didn't it? And it almost had a different different spin on it than did the NIV. And I want to explain that. There's a bit of a debate on this particular passage and how to interpret it. And the debate centers around the Hebrew word here, shomer, which is translated in the NIV as "eyed," And it's translated in the ESV and the NAS as uh, watch or watched, okay? And and so there's there's a debate about this passage kind of around this particular word. And so the ESV reads, the high official is watched by the higher ones over them, but this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And so the way the ESV has taken this, they've basically said this is a good thing in that it results in uh, kind of a hierarchy or accountability of this system to make sure that, that some, one person is one leader is watching the next, and that's kind of how the passage comes across. And the NAS is very similar: for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. And, and again, we get the sense that this is a good thing. It's about sort of checks and balances, even though it results in the oppression of others. The system, for for the most part, is good. That's kind of how those translations have taken it, whereas the NIV has taken it differently and taken it more negatively. One official eyes the other official. And I want to just explain how this has occurred and how this happens and how to use different translations as you study the Bible. The NIV, or let's start with the ESV and the New American Standard. They are more literal word-for-word translations, and what they do... They take the original language, in this case Hebrew, and they take the word shomer here. And they want to find the closest English word to that word. And so they'll say shomer, it looks like this. Well, the closest word we have is watch, to watch. And so we're going to translate it that way. And that sounds good, right? It's precise. What's the most precise word for this original word over here? It's this one. And so that, that's what they do, and those are great translations, and that's a great thing to do. The NIV takes it a little differently. The NIV is what we call a dynamic equivalent, and what it does is it looks at the unit of thought. It looks at a paragraph or a section and says, what is the flow of this section? What is the context? What is trying to be said here as a whole? And what is the best way we can capture the overall meaning over here? And so we get the, both have the, the benefits, and in fact, I would encourage you to have both kinds of translations, one of each, so you can compare the two against each other, because sometimes it's better to have a sense of the whole, and sometimes it's better just to be able to look precisely at that word. In this particular case, I think the NIV does a lot better job with it, because they're looking at the context. What's the context here? It's about greed. It's about injustice. It's about, it's about oppression. And so how is that going to be translated in a positive sense? So the NIV looks at the word shomer, sees how it's used, and sees that it can be used positively or negatively, looks at the context for its clue, and then judges it and and interprets it negatively, showing that what's, what's really being said here is one official watches the other or eyes the other maybe opportunistically, like a thief watches his mark. Or a person watches a place, casing it out. Uh, looking for the opportunity to line a leader's pockets, uh, seizing the moment. That kind of a eyeing something. And I think the NIV does a lot better job at capturing this. I think the other interpretations of the ESV and the NAS are um, not as consistent with the context. Here we have oppression and greed and injustice. It doesn't make sense that it would be extolling the virtues of such a system when that really occurs. Anyways, I just wanted to show you kind of how that works again and and to show you again how it fits into the overall message of the book. Ecclesiastes is not a book about the way things ought to be. It's a book about the way things are, life under the sun, life as it really is, life as we find it, life on the human plane, an honest look at it. That's what the book is about. And so Solomon lays out his perspective of the economic environment in which we live in, this world that we live in, and he basically comes to the conclusion that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The rich get richer on the backs of the poor and on the backs of those that are below them. And that is just the way it is. That's what's basically being presented here. Let me show it to you from a different perspective. How many of you like watching, or how many of you like the NFL? You like watching NFL games? Good. I do too. I feel a little conflicted in that, but I do. In the 2011 and 2012 season, the average salary for an NFL football player, the average, was $1.9 million. That's just their NFL salary. That's not endorsements or anything else that they might add to that. OK uh, And they were unhappy about that. So they set up a lockout, uh, because they were upset that the owners were trying to put a salary cap on how much they could earn. OK? And we listen to that and we hear that, and that just that's appalling, isn't it? It's disgusting. It's hard to even fathom being unhappy with an average annual salary of nearly two million dollars. But, you know, if we put ourselves in their shoes and we look above them, we find a coach. And do you know what the average annual salary for an NFL coach is? It's between 3 and $4 million. And coaches didn't do a lockout, as I understand it. The coaches, on the other hand, you know, they're oppressed, too. Because when they look up, they see the owners. And do you know what the the average net worth for a private owner of an NFL football team, $1.4 billion. So as you can see, the players are oppressed. <laughs> right? The the result of the matter, as you can see from the NFL, from this, this just gross distortion and this gross wealth, uh, is that it all trickles down to the average fan. The average fan will pay more in... Uh, Seat prices and tickets, they'll pay more in concessions. Those of us that watch on TV will either pay more in our cable package or we'll just do away with cable and try to watch in just the networks, but we'll pay more for the products that advertise on the networks. That's the way life is. That's the way it goes. Don't you feel it every day? That's how it works. The money's at the top. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the rich get rich on the backs of the of those below them. And that's quite simply how it goes. That is the nature of greed. It results in the oppression of others. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, Solomon goes on to show not just how greed affects the world around us, but it goes on to show that greed never satisfies. The way it affects us personally, the way we face it, the way we feel it, it does not satisfy. And this, these next two verses here, 10 and 11, are these are passages that I have to, need to, and choose to recall for myself frequently. These verses speak to me and they need to speak to me because I need them. Because I am prone to be as greedy as the next person. Verse 10 says this, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them. So here again we're introduced to this, this, this Hebrew word that we've been looking at throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Havel. Remember that? And it's translated here in the NIV, meaningless. And as we've looked at that, the, probably a better understanding of that word, rather than meaningless, is vaporous, deceptive, fleeting, transitory, elusive, or as Eugene Peterson translates it, smoke. It looks like something. It looks like it's substantive until you grasp for it. And then we're left wanting. And that's what greed and desire does for us. That's what this continual desire for money and things will ultimately do. They will leave us wanting and grasping for more, chasing the wind. If you love accumulating, you will always want to accumulate more. This is why the New Testament tells us in 1 Timothy 6 that it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money itself. It's not ownership itself. It is a love and affection for those things that produces evil. And then he goes on to talk about, okay, let's get real. Let's say you do have success and you attain and you obtain things in your life. How will that go with you? The more you obtain... Like the fridge fight that we have, the more you have to protect. The more leftover pizza, the more Chinese food, the more cold pop is in the fridge, the more you have to parcel it all out and guard it and keep it because others will come after it. That's how it goes. The more money you earn, guess what? The more taxes you'll pay. And then to avoid paying taxes, you'll hire a CPA to find all of the loopholes that you can honestly take advantage of, but you'll pay the CPA to do it. And the more you earn and the trickier you get, the more forms you will have to fill out, the more expensive that will become. Um, That is the way things go. The more you have, the more of those that consume them. Uh, I saw this play out in my my own personal life as a college student. Uh, I chose to go to Biola University down in Southern California and um, we didn't have a lot of money in, in my family, and so I, I filed for financial aid and got a nice financial aid package. And um, one, of the, um, one of the pieces of financial aid that I received was called the Pell Grant. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. I think at the time it was about $2,500 uh, w- what I qualified for. But I still had to uh, take out, I think it was about $3,000 in student loans that year and I didn't want to do that, but I wanted to finish school, and that was the route I was going, and so uh, I did so. So I worked very hard that year as a student to try to uh, make sure that I wouldn't have to do that the next year. You know what happened? I ended up earning too much as an individual, and so the following year I was disqualified from receiving the Pell Grant. And I thought, "Are you got to be kidding me. How backwards is this? You know, here we have someone who's, tr- well, I get, I'll get distracted. <laughs> I can't go there. Uh, The more we have, the more are those that consume them. The more things come after them. That is the way it is. And I think the message that we take from this is that happiness is found in contentment with what we have, not attainment for more. There's this uh, passage that J.R. Tolkien has written in his uh, Lord of the Rings books here, and I want to read this to you. Uh, He says this, It has been remarked by some that hobbits' only real passion is for food. A rather unfair observation as we also have developed a keen interest in the brewing of ales and the smoking of pipeweed. But where our heart truly is, is in peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. For all hobbits share a love for things that grow, And yes, no doubt to others, our ways seem quaint. But today of all days, it is brought home to me, it is no bad thing to celebrate a simple life. Isn't that good? And that phrase, a simple life, isn't that just, that's like a warm blanket, isn't it? It just sounds good. It sounds right. It's so appealing. It's such a draw. A simple life. Isn't that what we want after all? We just try to go about it in so many different ways. And scripture tells us that we end up piercing ourselves with many griefs in 1 Timothy 6. If we have that love of money and things, it doesn't satisfy. Ecclesiastes 4.6 says, Better one handful with tranquility than two with toil and chasing after the wind. Ironically, there is a clothing company uh, uh, called Patagonia. And they have this shirt that they produced. Maybe you've seen it. And right on the front of the shirt it says, live simply, right? Well, that shirt can be yours for about 60 bucks. <laughs> A little bit of irony there. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Well, not only does greed result in oppression of others, but, and not only does it not satisfy, but ultimately greed produces fear. Solomon goes on to say, look at verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. Again, the Bible does not tell us that ownership itself uh, is wrong, but it tells us that accumulating it Especially for the sake of security, when we think that the more we have, the more secure we will feel, we are in error. That is absolutely an illusion. And when we pursue uh, accumulating things for security, in reality, it will rob us of real security. And we will even feel that in life. And so here we're basically shown that in the end, it's the laborer, it's the guy at the bottom. Of the hierarchy at work. It's the laborer who works hard. Eats light. And sleeps well. He lays down at night. His body is tired. His stomach is not turning on too much food. And he sinks deep into his pillow. And he falls asleep quickly. And he rests completely. And he wakes up refreshed. Because he's had a night of of good sleep his conscience is clear and he has nothing to lose and he is presented as the man to be envied here the rich man however rolls over and over in his bed worrying about how to secure what he has Um, when I was a small boy growing up in Apple Valley California we had this this neighbor across the street his name was Sam and Sam was a mechanic and he had a particular affection for uh, this one make of car Uh, called the tornado anybody know this one i i don't even remember who made it was it pontiac or oh oldsmobile (laughs) these guys know did you hear that it was like overwhelming this side oldsmobile i guess i was facing over there um and he was kind of an odd man to me as i observed him Um, but he had about four or five or six of these just in the front yard and he would work on them routinely and usually one of them ran (laughs) But he had five or six of them in the front yard. And then he had a garage that was filled with parts and boxes and tools. And when I mean filled, I mean filled. I mean from the floor to the ceiling with a little narrow path that wandered through. And then in the backyard, there were another 10 or 12 um, of these cars. And this is not a four-acre you know, lot in Alaska somewhere. This is a quarter-acre lot in California in a neighborhood. And I just thought he was odd as a kid. I look back now and I see this man was consumed by an obsession. And he hoarded all of these things because he couldn't pass up a car. He couldn't pass up a project. He couldn't pass up a part or a box of tools or something like that because of all of the potential that was there. And he continued to amass and to hoard and to surround himself with these things. And he ended up losing his whole family over it. That was the end of it. I have seen another grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. Martin Luther has said this, riches are among the most trivial things on earth and the smallest gift God gives to a person. Isn't that good? The smallest gift. Well, not only does greed produce fear, as we are constantly trying to protect what we desire, but greed also magnifies loss. The first, uh, starting at verse thirteen, and then on into the next section here. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun: wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and and, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain, since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger." There's this commercial on TV uh, these days, maybe you've seen it. I think it's put out by ING, and it starts with the question, what's your number? And you see somebody walking around with some large number with lots of commas in it under their arm, and it basically is their retirement number, and it's what they're trying to achieve. And, of course, the whole point is about putting a plan together. And I'm not trying to knock retirement or planning for the future uh, or saving or these kinds of things because the Bible commends hard work, and it commends not being dependent financially on other people. And I want to read that to you really quickly from First Thessalonians four eleven and 12. It says this, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody." But the warning and the caution here is that if we are trusting in these things and the accumulating of these things, even the savings of these things and what we have amassed and what might be in our retirement portfolio for our ultimate security, we will most likely be disappointed. It is an illusion. Money is an illusion of security. The reality of it is we are all one bad investment, one bad accident, One bad illness, one bad business deal, one bad relationship away from losing it all. That is reality. That is the way things are. What's in the bank is an illusion of security. Um, Misfortune can take it all away. And And if misfortune doesn't take away our money, ultimately death will take us away from it. That is reality. Randy Alcorn in his book called The Treasure Principle uh, has summarized this whole section of verses really well. And so I just want to read it to you. I've, I've written the title of this book down in your notes if you wanted to check it out later. I'd encourage that. But he says this, The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. The more you have, the more people will come after it. The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. The more you have, the more you have to lose. The more you have, the more you will leave behind. Isn't that good? I think he's right on the money there. So, what do we do? What's the application? Some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, well, he's a Baptist pastor. He's about to pass, pass the plate, right? <laughs> that's what you're thinking. And that's not quite where I'm headed here. That's not where Solomon goes initially. He says this. I think he says, be content. Be content with, and what I'll phrase here is a living wage. Be content with a living wage. Look at verse 18. Then I realized that it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink, and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot, and to be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. And so the way I would summarize this and kind of show it here is is this. If you have good work and it produces for you good food and you're able to wash down that good food with a good beverage, then that's more than just a good day. That's a good life. And we should find contentment in that, a living wage which gives us what we need, what we need. He goes on basically to say that God may, in fact, give you more. He may give you more, but don't count on it. Don't count on it coming to you, and if it does come to you, don't count on it when it's there. Don't count on it. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honors so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. And so here again we're introduced to a wealthy man, a rich man who has everything he could want, but he meets with an untimely end, an untimely death. And worse than that, he doesn't have an heir to pass it on to. And so he looks around and considers of what value is my life? I have earned, attained and amassed all of this and I will not enjoy it and I will not give it to one whom I love it will pass to a stranger and what's the point point? and then Solomon goes on to describe a different kind of man look at verse 3 he says a man may have a hundred children and live many years yet no matter how long he lives if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial I say that a stillborn child is better off than he It, this child, comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years, twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. And so here we're introduced to what I'll call the kept man. He has everything he could want. This man has a hundred children. He has long life, a ridiculous long life. He even offers him 2,000 years of living here in this scenario. And he has prosperity. But he possesses so much that he is simultaneously preoccupied with all of the responsibility and never gets around to enjoying what God has entrusted him with. Who cares how much you have if you never get around to enjoying it? And so a lot of people think that the book of Ecclesiastes is a really negative, downer book. I don't see that at all. What Solomon is saying here is, I want you to enjoy life. And chasing things and accumulating and all of this will not accomplish it. Get on with enjoying the common life as it is. A simple life. God may give more, but don't count on it. And then finally... Don't hoard what God has given; invest it. I don't have time this morning to develop the rest of these, these verses here. But basically, verses six through uh, six through twelve kind of show us the emptiness of ambition and inquiring things, and trying to get to the top. They're empty. It's empty. It's lonely at the top. Uh, and, and instead, what he tells us here in six nine, which I think is a good summary of this section, is better what the eye sees. Then the roving of the appetite, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So how do we apply this? How do we put this in place here? Um, I think if I could sort of summarize it and put it in one phrase, it's the title of your message, and that is, put God's name on it. And I mean that in contrast to what we normally do with things, the way we handle our refrigerator and all of these treats that we want to enjoy for ourselves. We tuck them in there, we hide them, we hoard them, we put our name on it with warnings and threats, trying to secure for ourselves. The answer here is contentment with what God gives and putting His name on whatever has been entrusted to us. So that it's not ours to grasp and to hold and to secure, but ours to use for a time. To use for His good and for the good of His kingdom. Not to try to attain pleasure for ourselves, for that is an illusion. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering message on the front end because it confronts us with who we really are. And none of us is as we should be. So in that sense, it hurts. But in the other sense, Lord, you mean it. You mean it for our good. So that we might find real enjoyment in this life. And not cling to what are illusions. But to place ourselves in your hands. And to live with contentment with that which you give us. And to put our hope not in now, but in the future. So we trust in you and we put our put your name on those things which you have brought to our lives in Jesus' name we pray amen